The National Archives podcast series, Human Woes, Researching Violence and Pain in the Archives, presented by Joanna Burke, as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. This talk was recorded on the 21st of February 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. What I want to talk about today is um, part of some of my research in archives. Um, I've been actually passionate about archives since I was very, very young. Uh, my first visit to one, I still remember to this day. I was very young and very naive, first year undergraduate um, at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And I was sent to the National Archives down in Wellington. Um, to research capital punishment. And I still remember the feeling when I sat down, and it wasn't as modern then as, as your place here, and I sat down, they had this card catalogue, and I was going through it. And what did I see? I saw my father's name, Stafford Daniel Burke, written there. I called up this document, and there he was. 1940s, it turns out that my father, a young man then, had written to the government, urging them to repeal capital punishment. Um, and they actually invited him as a young man down to Wellington to speak in front of the committee to make his case against capital punishment. It was the first I knew about it. And of course, like many sort of young people, I didn't really even imagine that my father actually had a life before I was born. <laughs> um, and the fact that he had been not only young, but progressive, you know, it was, uh, was mind-blowing. It was a lesson I never forgot. In other words, that the people in the past have led complex lives, and our role as historians is to be as true as possible to precisely those complexities. Since, however, that youthful epitome for me, um, um, I hope, at least, that I have grown more aware of what the archive can and, of course, cannot provide. My research has always, or almost always, focused on violence, war, rape, being human and yet acting inhumanely. And the archives, of course, are actually packed full of pain and suffering. This year, we are remembering the 100th year since the First World War. And while there is going to, of course, there is already great celebrations about heroism and courage, there's also, of course, going to be a lot about pain and suffering, the horror, the horror. Archives throughout the country have already started exploring in great depth um, uh, their collections for insights about how people at the time actually dealt with the terribleness of that period. And what we find, I think, is that even through these extremes of experience, when all seems to be trauma, when there's patently no answer, no sense to be found, when, if you like, fear and anxiety is weighing very heavily, on everyone, so the very self is in danger. What we find, however, is that we still have their words. Um, like the stuttering lines I found once. I was working in Wigan, in the archives up there, and I found um, a handwritten note by someone called Private E. Lucas. I, was never, I never learned what his full name was. And this was what he wrote. He wrote, showers of lead flying about and big, big shells. It's an unearthly sight to see them drop in amongst human beings. The cries are terrible. I escaped being hit, but got caught in the barbie wire and had blood poisoning and got buried once that caused me to have fits and trip to France is not nice. But when the murderers are killing everyone, children included, and destroys churches, may the Lord put an unholy curse on them forever and ever. The sights cannot, cannot be explained in writing. Writing is not my line, 
no fighting either for them that wants to let them fight because I will never like it no no never now what are we to do when we read such lines the voyeuristic thrill of the discovery leads me to recite the stranger's words with a sense I think of proprietorship um, born of pride and sort of going through those big boxes of uncatalogued papers cutting through the deafening silences that are often the historian's lot and suddenly fixing on what, you know, if we want to be flowery, what do we want to may designate as the kind of authentic pulse of trauma does cause a thrill and may give a sense of legitimacy that we may um, are able to speak on behalf of strangers, forgetful, of course, of the fact that this is speech without mandate. Although fear is humanity's inheritance, trembling is our testament. And the historian, I think, must always tremble in the face of that stranger glimpsed beneath the rubble of history. When we look at those who actually experienced these things, the privates, not the generals, the women and children left behind, not the politicians, what do we see? Fear grief and sorrow. These are the overriding emotions of war for men, women and children confined to the home front between 1914 and 1918. These exhilarating surges of patriotic um, uh, energies and the evaporation of many of the traditional restraints on their lives were, I think, fleeting thrills when set against the loss of loved ones. Children woke to find that their husbands, their fathers, sorry, had left for distant battlefields while they slept. 300,000 never saw their fathers again. 160,000 wives received that dreaded telegram informing them that their husbands had been killed. And countless others, of course, discovered the meaning of suffering. When Phyllis Kelly first heard that her lover, Eric Pulby, had been seriously wounded, she put pen to paper, and this was what she wrote. She wrote, my own darling Englishman, she's writing, by the way, from Dublin, uh, 28th of October, 1915. My own darling Englishman, I wonder why I'm writing this, which you may never see. Oh God, perhaps even now you have gone away from your lady. I wonder when another telegram will come. This knowing nothing is terrible. I don't know what to do. I have simply sat and shivered so with such an awful clutching fear at my heart. Oh, my love, my love, what shall I do? But I must be brave and believe that all will be well. Dear one, surely God won't take you from me now. It will be the end of everything that matters. You are all the world and life to me. Of course, the only reason why we have her letter is because it was never posted. Eric was already dead. All these things are revealed when we enter the archive, open the files and boxes, seeking always to hear the authentic voices of people in the past, and not only hearing them, but also in some, I think, strange way, sometimes actually touching them. I'm sure that many of you, like me, have returned home after a long day here in the archives um, with your fingers stained with black, with pencil, ink, and, of course, the flaked skin of the past. But if our physical experience of working in the archives is similar, with pencils, microfilm, the hush, the catalogues, the computer screens, now, of course, the tapping of iPads and 
um, apples. What we look for and what we find are in fact legion. There are many ways to do history in the archives and a lot of my recent work has um, been a sort of the kind of big picture type history. Uh, for instance, uh, my book, What It Means to Be Human, in that book, I was actually interested in some of the questions that have big questions that have excited people and excised people throughout history. What makes us human? It turns out that this very concept of human is very volatile in every period of history, um, every culture, commonsensical constructions of the human and the animal exist, of course, but the distinction is constantly being undermined and reconstructed. Why do people hate and hurt each other? When do they unite in sympathy, in compassion? Are women truly human? It's not actually, um, by the way, such a stupid question. After all, late 1960s, zoologist Desmond Morris can be heard claiming that, quote, the naked ape, self-named Homo sapiens, is proud that he has the biggest brain of any primate, but attempts to conceal the fact that he also has the biggest penis. Hmm, I guess that sets me outside the human. Um, when do we eat? Why do we eat some animals and not others? Should animals have rights? All animals or just the great apes? Why is vivisection wrong or right? Do all humans truly feel? Or are some people actually more insensitive and therefore can be denied anaesthetics during operations? A very important question in the 19th century. Why do some people enjoy acting cruelly? Is war, in fact, inevitable? It turns out that our compulsive inclination to demarcate the territory of the human from the non-human is one of the greatest driving forces in history. And delimiting those boundaries, those territories, not only involves violence, but actually inspires violence. But today, so this is sort of the work I've been doing recently, but today I want to turn to a different kind of approach in the archive. Um, not the sort of broad sweep, big questions um, type history across time and across continents, which is what inspired what it means to be human, but what is called micro history, or the close study of one individual in order to reflect on broader, even global concerns or trends within society. The very distinguished historian, young historian, Filippo de Vivo, has observed that micro-historical approaches to history act as an anecdote to the elitism of traditional political history. The specificity, as well as the heterogeneity of the lives of these so-called ordinary people turn out, I think, to be an extraordinary frame through which um, historians can actually reflect on the general. The close study of one man's life, for example, can serve as a lens through which the broader culture can be refracted. Local, national and even global contexts can be illuminated through the study of just one person. And the rest of this talk, I want to illustrate this by turning to just one file that I discovered here in the National Archives. And that is 
the First World War pension file of Frank Hopkinson. Just one file, yet it tells, I think, us a story that is both profound and disturbing about pain and suffering in the 20th century. And I'm very, very grateful, by the way, for his family, um, who I tracked down, for giving me permission to talk um, uh, about him and to show, show images from his file. Now, the most basic thing I learned when I opened this file can be succinctly summarized in one sentence. And that is, the war, the First World War, did not end in 1918. Not for everyone. When Lieutenant Francis Frank Hopkinson died 17th of December 1974, he was 85 years of age and had lived over half a century in severe pain as a result of having been wounded um, Third Battle of Ypres on the 12th of August 1917. He underwent three major operations, um, um, having his left leg amputated three times. He also was hospitalized suffering from shell shock. From those terrifying months in 1917 until his death in 1974, Hopkinson's endured, Hopkinson endured profound physical and mental anguish due to his agonizingly tender stump, and he also suffered excruciating phantom limb pain. In other words, the life of Frank Hopkinson reminds us, or serves as a reminder, that the effects of wartime wounding did not end with the armistice, although, of course, most history books on medical um, military medicine, of course, do end there. After the First World War, millions of men returned home with devastating, distressing physical and psychological wounds. Many lived with those afflictions for decades. Their entire lives, and incidentally, um, the lives of their lives, loved ones, this invisible labor that women did after the war for decades is also very, very important. Um, their entire lives, though, were ruled by pain, despair, and conflict with military authorities and medical personnel. Although their continued suffering was often dismissed or treated as inauthentic, um, disabled service person could not themselves, of course, shrug off their disability, their misfortune. Young lives could not simply be resumed. The war-afflicted body is or was a life sentence. So what I want to argue for the next 30 minutes is that Hopkinson's life these two files can be used as a lens through which to reflect on debates within British society. I will be arguing that a close study of his painful experiences, which spanned most of the century, 1917 to 1974, can shed a light on the responses of medical personnel in Britain to the nature of acute and chronic pain. The life of Hopkinson can tell us um, a great deal about local, national, and even global contexts. In terms of local contexts, you know, Hopkinson's life obviously was profoundly affected by his immediate surroundings. The damp weather, for example, um, we can read in his file here, damp weather used to make his phantom, my phantom limb started pulsating. His father was, uh, was a minister. When he would hear hymns, um, he couldn't stop crying. He would burst into tears. These were significant events in his world. 
Also, it helps us look at national um, events. Now, obviously, the British government's decision, our declaration of war, disrupted everything in Hopkinson's world. But of course, subsequent debates, national debates, about um, uh, the establishment of the Ministry of Pensions, for example, in 1916, and later the National Health Service, innovations in artificial limb technologies and uh, were also decisive. But also global trends. The physicians who treated Hopkinson's were embedded within global scientific and medical communities. So, who was Frank Hopkinson's? He was born 1889 into a privileged family, the second son of Canon Charles um, Hopkinson, rector of Whitburn in Sutherland. He um, was educated at Marlborough, an independent boarding school, and the definitions, the descriptions of him in the files show him to be a very, very tall, strapping young man who enjoyed riding horses and worked for a bit as a clerk in the nitrates work in northern Chile. And if you actually look at his file, this confused me for a long time, um, his file which was giving his, his, his history and his history of his family, um, they say that he worked in Chile and they spell it like um, you know, the, the spice, Chile spice. It took a long time. I thought he worked in the spice industry for ages, but no, he worked in nitrates work in northern Chile. Um, and he joined the 11th Durham Battalion a few days after the declaration of war. At that time, medical officers, we've got his medical report there when he joined, medical officers judged him to be of normal health, strapping, strong, not very nervy. This all changed 12th August 1917, when a bomb dropped from a plane, um, probably a British plane, by the way, um, smashed his leg into fragments. His leg became infected with gas gangrene and had to be amputated three times. Um, if you look in his file here, and I was doing it today just to remind myself, you can actually look at a number of x-rays of his hand. You can see exactly the different uh, times it was amputated and they x-rayed it every time. Hopkinson was distraught. It has been found necessary, he wrote, to re-amputate my leg for protruding bone, as there is no cushion or protection, whatever, to the end of the stump. This was a serious setback, he wrote, because I am now faced with the prospect of another operation, leaving very little stump at a time when I had hoped to start work. He never, in fact, was um, employed again. The site of his amputation was particularly unfortunate. Of the 41,300 British servicemen who lost a limb, one or more limbs, of these three quarters lost a leg. However, very few people, very few men, actually endured an amputation as high as Hopkinson's one. Of all the amputees who were treated, um, like Hopkinson, at Queen Mary's Hospital in Roehampton, only um, 11, 1.5% were left with such a short stump. So only 1.5% had such a short stump. That, that is a stump that did not exceed five inches in length. In order to wear an artificial limb, just to give you an idea of this, in order to wear an artificial limb, the ideal length for thigh amputations is between 10 to 12 inches. On October 1918, the Army's Medical Board reported that there was not sufficient covering on his limb, and he was left with, in their words, merely a skin flap, condition of which is poor and painful on pressure. 
His condition is permanent, as any operation to remedy this would leave no stump to insist on an artificial limb. Instruction to proceed home. In fact, after they wrote that, he had the third amputation, even shorter. Okay. As a result, and the third amputation, by the way, was as late as 1927. 1927, so 10 years after the injury. As a result, the only artificial limb he could be given was what's called a tilting table artificial limb, which was notoriously heavy and difficult to, to, to wear. In fact, um, people with such a short amputation, less than 1% were able to wear um, this tilting table artificial limb. In fact, he spent his entire life on crutches. Now, he went to recuperate to this lovely vicarage here in 1918, uh, Whitburn Vicarage. Um, good news, on 15th of January 1919, the Times reported that he was engaged to marry a childhood sweetheart, Miss Julia McCullough. Nine years after the bans were published, the Times reports a marriage. A marriage is arranged to take place very quietly in Sunderland between Julia and Captain Percy de Windfund Kitkat of the Nautical School, Northumberland. Now, in fact, um, he, Hawkinson, was never to marry. His nephews, who I have spoken to, who are very, very helpful, um, remembered Hopkinson as a, their one-legged uncle who drove a large sports car in which sat his long-term male friend. They believe he was gay. Hopkinson's amputations and the collapse of his marriage plans were complicated by another ordeal. He suffered from shell shock. For Hopkinson's, his painful stump and psychiatric instability were inseparable. As he explained in a letter to the Ministry of Pensions, 1919, I'd been invalided from the service and immediately find that I am unable to take up employment on account of my bad amputation. I have had to have my stump reamputated, and it will be some months before I can bear the pressure of an artificial limb. This is the second amputation. I can therefore only work on crutches, walk on crutches. My stump is very short, underlined three times, and almost amounts to disarticulation. I also suffer from nervousness, insomnia, and impaired memory, having been a patient in Palace Green Shellshock Hospital. Indeed, his psychological distress was closely related to his wounding. While being evacuated um, in 1917 to King Edward VII's hospital, Hopkinson, uh, we read, had to wait some hours under railway arches during air raid. The strain was too much for him. Upon arrival in London, he had an anxious expression and had developed confusion of thought and s with suspicions and hostility. 1st of October 1917, only um, a week after he got there, he was sent for treatment to the Palace Green Shellshock Hospital um, for Shellshock officers. On arrival, he was described as having an anxious expression. He is confused and suspicious of his surroundings, doubtful as to dates and times, afraid of air raids and anxious to be evacuated. So he, st he still thought he was in France. Although the psychological effects of Hopkinson's war service persisted throughout his life, his phantom limb um, and painful stump were in fact equally agonizing. Now the phenomenon of phantom limb had been described as early as the 16th century. 
by the great French military surgeon Ambrosi Perret. In his words, a most clear and manifest argument of this false and deceitful sense, phantom limb, appears after the amputation of the member. A long while after, they will complain of the part which is cut away. Verily, it is a thing wondrous strange, and which ill scarce be their ears, the patients who have many months after the cutting away of the legs grievously complained that they yet feel exceeding great pain of that leg so cut off. Um, that's a rather complicated way of describing what Hopkinson said was, my leg feels like that foot is being crushed at its stump level. Hopkinson was frustrated by the inability of his physicians to eradicate or even ameliorate his agony. October 1937, 20 years after his injury, Hopkinson's reported suffering pains like electric socks, sick, that's not a spelling mistake, <laughs> um, from his stump, which were only partly relieved by aspirin and whiskies and so soda. As time went on, however, no cure was found, and Hopkinson's increasingly had difficulty persuading his, his doctors that he was actually suffering, that his suffering was real. Instead, medical reports focused more and more, and you can trace it through, more and more on the alleged neurotic character of his symptoms. Now, it didn't help Hopkinson that his injury, that his shell shock, had not been caused directly by combat, but was, um, came into being when he was subjected to an air raid on his way to the hospital after landing in England. In other words, for the doctors, this showed a distinct lack of soldierly self-control. After all, these bombs were intended to terrify civilians, not soldiers. And of course, they used this as further evidence that he had a pre-existing mental um, weakness. From the 1930s, medical report after medical report reiterated the view that Hopkinson was of a marked neurasthenic type. He was a highly introspective type and very resentful. In the words of the medical board in January 1936, Hopkinson was a man of sensitive temperament and not a good type, probably an allusion to his homosexuality. On 17th of July 1939, for example, a medical examination catalogued his uh, stump's lightning pains, but concluded that this officer is highly neurotic and the lesion is in his mind and not the stump. Complains of having been badly treated and that he is insufficiently compensated by a 70% pension, thinks it should be 100%. So for the remaining decades of his life, and a lot of money depends on what percentage your disability is. Remaining decades of his life, Hopkinson was plagued by these accusations that his suffering was not real. He was said to exhibit a hypochondriac type of personality, rather an old womanish type. Egotistical, etc., does not work and has all the time in the world to think about himself and his disabilities. So what treatment was he offered? What therapies were on offer for men like Hopkinson? In the decades, four decades 
between the 1940s and his death. Hopkinson was treated by physicians on both sides of a really major divide in um, the treatment of pain. In shorthand, this was um, the distinction, the difference between those who focus on the brain's reaction to painful stimuli, centralists they call them, and those who were peripheralists. In other words, those who believed that um, painful sensations um, originated from excitation of nerve ends in the scar at the bottom of his stump or in the stump himself. Cerebral theorists placed their bets on the efficacy of neurosurgery. 23rd of November 1943, Jeffrey Jefferson. He is the big name worldwide, globally, in neurosurgery, neuroscience um, in this period. Um, he examined Hopkinson. He noted that, or he reported, that Hopkinson experienced phantom pains really badly for a few hours every week or so. It is then unbearable. He takes dope and it comes under control. Jefferson offered um, Hopkinson an alternative radical treatment, chlordoctony. Um, a treatment that had been winning many, many friends in this period from the 1940s. It involved basically dividing the pain pathways in the spinal cord, thus interrupting the pathways of painful impulses in order to abolish or reduce their effects, um, so before they actually reach the brain. Critics of the operation um, noted that there were very distressing um, side effects, um, including defective sphincter control, motor defect, ulcers, and should not be lightly undertaken in the chronically ill and elderly. Hopkinson decided at this point, after hearing um, these um, side effects, that getting elderly at this stage, of course, that he did not desire the operation. Perhaps the chronically weakened 54-year-old was rather daunted by these risks. Jefferson then sent him to more traditional forms of treatment. It's very interesting. Nearly every one of the people who treats Hopkinson is a very, very big doctor in this period, at, at, this, at least from the 1940s onwards. This time, rather than turning to the knife, Hopkinson's doctor tried percussion therapy. What you do is you... Um, desensitize the stump by repeatedly hitting it with a wooden mallet. Now remember, he's got an extremely painful stump at this time. So there's the mallet there, and you just keep repeatedly um, hitting your stump to desensitize it. As the inventor of this kind of treatment, um, the physician explained, the amputee is learning to knock away his phantom pain whenever it is troublesome. For Hopkinson, it actually did succeed for a couple of years and then ceased to be effective. Now, Hopkinson's um, predicament was representative of a much broader trend within post-war society. And here I'm saying not post-war in terms of post-First World War, but post-Second World War society. All the physicians who treated him were aware that Hopkinson's was part of a problem that they all faced with elderly amputees. Um, and this sort of big crisis is one that historians have completely ignored in the post-Second World War world. 1953, it's estimated that there were nearly 24,000 men and one woman um, in Britain who had lost one or more leg during the Second World War. So in other words, there are a lot of 
elderly amputees. Um, amputees from the 1914-18 war were, of course, now elderly, and the newly established National Health Service was struggling to deal with them. It took, however, until Hopkinson was 84 years of age, that is, 54 years after he was wounded, before the medical board finally accepted what Hopkinson had been telling them all along. He really was 100% disabled. Indeed, at the age of 84, the age of 84, they discovered for the first time bomb fragments in his left shoulder, in his knuckles, and in his wrist, the presence of which Hopkinson's physicians had always denied. They also reported that he had a head injury, he'd fallen down, arthritis in his right wrist and thumb, and callosity in the palm of his hands, due doubtless to um, most of a lifetime um, spent on crutches, or half a century spent on crutches. He was offered uh, physiotherapy. A report by the Ministry of Social Security, 28th of January 1974, noted that Hopkinson was still depressed by his pain and was experiencing, underlined in capital letters, severe phantom pains by day with stabs of stump pain. After a friend from the British Limbless Ex-Servicemen's Association offered to take him to a trip to Brighton for a holiday if the ministry would pay for the petrol, Hopkinson pleaded with the welfare officer to let him go. And I wish I had shown you, but I, I, I didn't have it with me, um, his beautiful handwriting. You know, this upper middle class man in his early years when he's writing to the Ministry of Pensions. You know, just perfect handwriting like you never see anymore. 1974. Can you arrange for me to stay at 4 Percival Terrace, Brighton, say next June 1974? I'm tired of sitting alone in my bedroom except for two hours outing on Sundays and it's bad for my morale. Hopkinson died 17th of December 1974. He was 85 years of age, lived 57 years with war injuries. Under cause of death, his death certificate reported senility, microcardial degeneration and failure, heart attack. And that's the last in the file. Um, Frank Hopkinson lived, had lived 57 years in almost constant pain. One of his doctors earlier had reported that he gets a lot of twitching and jumping in the stumps, like electric shocks, makes him shout and gets a temperature. Comes on at irregular times, about four times, often with a change in the weather, or if he goes to stay with a friend. Emotional, cries if he hears a hymn, or if he can't get a seat on a bus. Very irritable, cannot concentrate, unreliable, single, has tried to get a job but always turned down. These symptoms, in fact, changed relatively little his entire life. His sufferings cannot be summarized under any of the traditional um, uh, sort of categories. His pain was acute. It also was chronic, it also was physiological, it also was psychological, it also was emotional. It took place within hospital wards and when he was sitting alone in my bedroom. He struggled to distinguish the experience of pain from the pain of experience. On the surface, Hopkinson should have elicited sympathy. 
After all, he was a white male, had been born into a privileged family and had served as an officer in the war. In fact, his class status for him was actually a source of um, further agony. As one doctor reported, the officer is a man of sensitive temperament and a loss of his leg affects him more than one of coarser fibre. He hates people looking at him and sympathising with him. Those physicians who witnessed his pain on a regular basis um, often attempted to sympathise and provide succour, but their inability to solve his crises eventually led each of them to turn away, sometimes in despair, other times in annoyance. The invisibility of his wound, his stump seemed to be normal, um, and the limb that burned like fire did not exist, um, trumped all scientific theorizing about physiological pain pathways, psychiatric pathologies, constitutional inheritances, psychosomatic symptoms, and old womanish sensitivities. It is, I think, a remarkable story, and all found within these files here in the National Archives. It's microhistory that reflects on the local, the national, and the global. As important as the big picture, it reminds us, I think, of the need to listen to the voices of those men and, men and women in history who have typically been silenced. As I argue in what it means to be human, each person is born into a world that has already been forged by others. They resist, create and recreate, but always from a starting point that is not of their own choosing. Men like Hopkinson, whose pain and suffering went unacknowledged until he was in his 70s, or at best minimized, was constantly frustrated by the realization that others were unwilling to acknowledge the way that his world had been radically diminished. And this is why I celebrate the National Archives and indeed all archives, because it is within their walls that we can uncover the lives of the rich and the powerful, the abused and downtrodden, who turn out to be very, very extraordinary indeed. Thanks. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.